Okay, we'll start into the worship. We'll start with the traditional prayer. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Asher Kachana, B'mitzvotah, V'tzivano, La'asok, B'dibrei Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commandments and commands us to engross ourselves in the Torah. Um, this week, I'm going to start a little differently. I'm going to give you a bluff. And B-L-U-F, that stands for bottom line up front. When I worked in the Pentagon, we did that so that everybody in the room knew what I was going to be talking about, so they knew how to prepare themselves to yell at me when they were done, or when I was done, so they knew where we were going. It's important this week, and the reason I'm doing it is because this week's going to be a little bit scholastic, or what I'm going to talk about today may be a little bit scholastic in nature, and because it takes a little journey to get to where we're going for understanding of the scriptures this week, I think. So it's partly the nature of Leviticus, and I'm going to talk about Leviticus a little bit, but the bottom line up front right now is this, that the readings this week, first one's pretty easy in the Exodus, it'll be about Passover, just a few words about that, and then we'll get to the meat of it and, uh, in Leviticus, and that's about the clean and unclean, and how that status relates to us today in our modern world, and also about gossip and slander and how that is addressed, maybe not quite apparent if you take a quick read of it, but how it is addressed today in Scripture. So, we'll start with Datsriya. She conceives. The readings this week were Leviticus 12, 1, 13, uh, 59, Numbers 28, 9 through 15, the Exodus 12, 1 through 20. So we had a lot of them this week, Ezekiel 45, 16 to 46, 18, and John 6, 8 through 13. And I'll start a little bit with the Exodus. You're familiar with the story. I discussed it actually a few months ago, I think, in a, a different message. And it's now ancient history. But as you know, at least from that last message, it is something that we are to be remembered or is to be remembered down through all the generations till the end of time. And that, of course, is the Passover. Uh, hopefully, you've all given some thought to the Passover. It's coming in two weeks, and I can tell you by me going to the stores, if you're looking for lamb, it's getting hard to find already, so you need to get at it. That's not, I think, just because of Passover. I think there's a number of things, but you might want to go shopping for that early. I know it seems a lot of work, maybe, the Passover, but I think it is important to share it with family and friends if you can, to observe this very important appointed time. I'm not going to go into the story like I said, but there are a couple of interesting points about it I thought I'd just bring up that you might think about in your Passover. So a little or a couple of fun facts if there are such a thing for the Passover. Except for Shabbat, Passover is mentioned more than any other date of remembrance, over 100 times in the complete Bible and over 35 times in the Hadashah. Yeshua first preached the age of 12, this is all in and around Passover. Yeshua cleansed the temple, temple of sellers and money changers. He predicted he would rise in three days. He, re, he fed the 5,000. He was anointed with perfume. He washed the disciples' feet. Peter denies him three times. Peter's saved from prison by an angel. The Last Supper, of course, you know, is uh, the Passover. Yeshua, Yeshua was identified as our Passover lamb 
And if you want to know where that is, you can take a look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Not right now, but you can note it, and you can see that he is identified as that. And he was, of course, crucified. The Bible was given to us really for one overarching goal, and that is our salvation. So if the primary object of the Bible is to point the way to salvation, then I think it is important for us to consider and remind ourselves of that gift and how it was obtained for us specifically or especially at Passover. Yeshua directed us that we drink the Passover wine and eat the Passover matzah in remembrance of him. And that's Luke 22, 17 through 22, if you want to look that up. Many of you know me, and so many of you already know that this observance was key to my recognition of Yeshua as our and my sacrificial lamb. I think that may be true for many Jews who convert. It was through his perfect sacrifice that I understood a path to salvation for all had been opened. It was through Passover and really my wife's loving help in her actions, not so much her words, that illuminated that path for me. This understanding connected my past understanding, the Passover, to Yeshua's sacrifice. And it was a critical moment in my life. And I hope this Passover for you has deep meaning also, as you remember when you first understood or could see. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Jacques Cousteau, uh, maybe for the older folks, I guess. But uh, when I was a kid growing up, he was a diver. He invented the aqualung. I used to watch his movies. Um, he inspired me. I learned to dive and carried my dive gear all around the world in the service because of that. But he has a book out. It's called The Silent World. And in it, he writes a very significant, uh, significant point. And I think it's, I just like the wording. And it deals with how I felt about understanding Yeshua was my um, sacrificial lamb. He writes, specifically writes, and I'll quote, sometimes we are lucky enough to know that our lives have been changed. To discard the old and embrace the new and run headlong down a immutable course. To know our life has been changed, discard the old, embrace the new, and it's been immutably changed down this course. That happened to me with Passover when my eyes were open. So I hope you take a moment, that's all I'm going to say about that particular reading, and read the Exodus portion. And uh, I wish you all have a meaningful Passover meal. So now let's get into the harder part, I think. And that's Tazria. She conceived. This week's portion, as well as many others that we'll cover under Leviticus, can be, I think, a little dry, a little difficult to read, a little bit hard to put into perspective today. And it seems to me that Leviticus stands out among the five books of Moses, um, stands out as being written that way, different from the other books. So I think we need to take a little moment to examine that book so that we can understand where we're coming from. It is the shortest book of the five books of Moses. 
And as you know, it's right smack in the middle. You've already been through two books as we've worked our way through the scripture. You have two more to go. You've experienced the wonders of Genesis, the beauty and astounding process of creation. And then with Exodus, often called the greatest story of the Torah, the magnitude of a people suffering and their leap of faith and the start of a Jewish nation set apart. There's been great books and movies on these stories. They flow. They move kind of quickly through history. And then we come to Leviticus. There's a seeming pause now in that flow. That flow that is the essential narrative that defines a people and defines us now as the recipients of this legacy and the recipients of that responsibility, this loving and faith-based relationship with our Creator that we share with all. It's a pause where we examine the precepts and the trappings involved in the godly-directed rituals that support our history and faith. It can seem a little dry, mostly dealing with laws that are focused in areas that may not seem relatable. And if you read today, I think you may agree with that at this moment. Or even applicable in the modern world we live in, so distant from the world that they were written in. So this can lead us to an important conundrum, I think. What do we do with Leviticus and the readings in it? Certainly this week's readings start out right from the get-go with a statement or a point that many of you may find particularly unenlightening. But it's the Word of God. Can we or even should we entertain the thought of just ignoring it? Whoever said that, I agree. No, we should not. Maybe if you're a lawyer, I like lawyers, I like the law, but if you're a lawyer, maybe there is some interesting legislative points in here that you'll enjoy reading about uh, with judicial probity, it's called, and that's the moral or honest uh, application of law principles. How a temple was to be run, the importance of charity, and how that is to be accomplished in an agrarian society. It lays out in minute detail how to properly choose and sacrifice animals, um, what we can and or should and should not eat, even delves into or touches into some of the most intimate moments of our lives. These are all laid out in Leviticus, and for the most part in dry, specific, and maybe, maybe a better word, precise language. Now remember my bluff, and you have to keep that in mind as I travel through this. So in looking at Leviticus, it gives us, or at least as I looked at Leviticus, I tried to make a little bit of effort to get these out of my way. I, need to try, I try to give a little bit of effort to reductive thinking, to take a bunch of things that are kind of loosely and connect them and boil them down to a point. And that's where I got to my bluff. The notion of this week's portion is separation of the clean and the unclean, gossip and slander. If you've ever uh, celebrated Havdalah at the end of Shabbat, then you know what it means, separation, and how important that is. We pray in Havdalah between lightness and darkness, the sixth days and the seventh day, the holy and the secular, what it means to be clean and unclean, and the importance of not mixing those two as we examine ourselves at the end of Shabbat. 
So this drives us to the point where we begin to address the ontological or the fundamental nature that divides us or is the division between the creator and the creation, that is us. How we, the creation, can approach the creator, keeping in mind that Leviticus was written in a time before Yeshua, who changed that, at least the vehicle for that transition between the clean and unclean, but did not change the requirement for it at least not for us to have full reconciliation and an eternal existence in the presence of our God. We must be clean at that point. So, boy, I guess that all sounds a little dry, but let's get to it and keep going. First, what does it mean to be spiritually unclean? Is that an insult? Should we consider it an insult to be unclean? Does it mean you are less than someone who is ritually clean? I don't think so. And as I was considering how I can express this point to you in an understandable way, I thought about something. I thought about boots. And in the interest of keeping your attention, boys and girls, I have some show and tell. Boots. I like those boots. I was issued those boots in the military. They're for uh, desert operations, and they were specifically for the Gulf War. So obviously when I came back and left those deployments, I don't need them here in the States, and you certainly don't use them when you're on board ship at sea. So I brought them home. Good work boots. Now as you can look at them, they're not the fake ones that have the zipper on the side. You actually have to lace those up and down. So it takes a little while to get them on, on and off, but it's worth it. However, every time I wanted to come into the house, at least if I was interested in my self-preservation, <laughs> I had to take them off. They were not clean, and, said, and so did not belong in a clean house. There's nothing wrong with them. They didn't do anything wrong, obviously. And in fact, they had become unacceptable footwear in a clean house by performing the very act, the purpose for which they were designed, for which they were created. I could clean them to my wife's standard, which is pretty high, but it would take me a lot of time and effort. So I always took them off, even when you weren't home, dear, I promise. <laughs> Man, she would have known. Even if I mopped the floor afterwards, she would have known. So the point I hope I'm making here is obvious, and that is to be unclean is not always about having done something wrong. It can be the reason, as you will see, but often not necessarily so. It is the nature of the fact that we live in a fallen world. We cannot function fully in it and remain always clean. In fact, like in my example, you can become unclean for doing exactly what you were created and celebrated for. It is not a permanent state of being, but a transitory one that we all go through, without exception. It is a state of being we should want to be aware of because it separates us. And even though it may be for a completely justifiable reason, we still want to shake off that uncleanliness, the uncleanliness of this world to be able to approach the holy, 
But just like with my boots, sometimes that takes a little bit of time and effort. Now, I think most of you know me, and you know that I like to examine the elephant in the room when there is one. With that mindset, let's get right to the question. I'm sure all of you probably thought about if you read the verses this week. And specifically, I'm starting with the first one, the 12th chapter in Leviticus. And that question, I'm sure, was why is there a difference in the time a mother is unclean, her unclean status, between having a male child and a female child? Quite honestly, given the atmosphere of today, I was thinking about skipping right over that. Because <laughs> I can, and just seemed like a good idea. But, like I said, I like addressing the elephant in the room, so I spent a little time, actually quite a bit of time, although I didn't know I was going to be giving this message till this week. I spent quite a few hours reading books and searching the Internet for biblically sound research papers so that I could get a handle on this. Why? That's the answer I was looking for. And after a lot of research, I finally came to understand what I think. And what I think is, I don't know. <laughs> I know that's probably disappointing, really. But it wasn't wasted time because I really got answers. I mean, when I researched it, I got answers all over the book. When I looked at sources, I mean, and I even went to the commentary of some of the great rabbis of history. And they covered all areas uh, when they tried to explain why this difference. They covered biological, societal, religious, psychological. And even one I'm going to add because it was an outlier, I'll give you that. But there was one paper that came to the conclusion that this extra time for little girls instead of little boys was unfair to male children which you may be surprised at because most people don't see it that way. And that's because during this time, mothers are relieved of many of the required ritual duties that they are typically to do. So it, re it represents a freedom to rest and to bond. <clears throat> sort of like maternity leave. And I know I'm getting off base here, but sort of like maternity leave. Would you rather have 40 days with your newborn or 80 days? Anyway, he was an outlier, or that paper was an outlier. It was a group of people. The bottom line is, after reading all of that, I could find no consensus. No reliable consensus, for, at least for this case. However, like I said, this wasn't wasted time. Because I did come to an understanding that the number of days that someone is unclean, and the process of moving to, clean, to being clean, does not reflect in any way on the severity or indicate in any way, that there are different levels of uncleanliness, that there's some weighted scale somewhere, and you're either higher and lower on this. It's only about the nature of the condition which brought you into that state of uncleanliness. And sometimes it is easy to shake off, and sometimes not so easy. So in other words, there should be no association invented to indicate the severity of an unclean state based on time. Longer does not mean worse. It only means just a longer process to consider maybe why you are unclean and to become clean. And I think this is kind of made clear in this case about the male and female child by what the mother must do to return fully to her responsibilities, to be ritually clean, to return to her uh, responsibilities. 
for both the male and female child, she used to make the same burnt and sin offering. So having a child, male or female, you still have to give the same burnt and sin offering. Now, if I could take the pulse, I'm sure there's a couple people out there whose pulse is starting to rise again. Why is that? Why do I have to make a burnt and sin offering for having a child? How does that, well, just why is this necessary? It seems, again, like a negative. Birth is a good thing, right? It's to be celebrated, and it was. So even if you came to terms with the clean and unclean, and you now understand what I understand, and that it's, it's not something that's necessarily a negative, just something you know needs to be addressed to be able to approach the holy, what is the, ma- what is the mother making this, these offerings for? Why are they necessary? Well, first, you must know what those offerings are actually for. And because the word sin is used in there, there can be a little bit of confusion. A burnt offering, I'll deal with that first, kind of can be done anytime. The rabbis did it before they approached the holies. It was basically a monthly thing also that was done on time. It's for atonement in general. It is an acknowledgement of our sin nature in a fallen world. What makes us unclean may not be anything to do with our fault necessarily. It's the condition we live in. So the mother has been away for a while, and she renews her relationship with God this way. It's not a negative. In the sin offering, a sin offering is different from just sin taken separately. The sin offering, these are for sins that were committed in ignorance or unintentionally. Yeshua was our sin offering. Remember what he said on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So I thought, when might a mother have happened to transgress to a point or to do something that might make a sin offering required, something not done intentionally? Well, I was around for my uh, daughter's birth, and having watched that event, Before drugs and epidurals, I can imagine that during childbirth, a young mother may be just a little less, or may have at least a little less wonderful thoughts about her husband and about the situation and the whole process she's in. There might be, I think, an unintentional thought or two that goes through her mind that falls slightly short of holy. I think it's a possibility. When I was with my wife, actually, quite honestly, she was silent through the whole process, and she was in labor for a full day almost. However, there was a lady down, a couple doors down from us, and she had a different take on it. And all I can say is, if I was her husband, when I got home, and I'd get home before she did, I'd hide all the knives. She was not a happy camper. So what do we usually mix up the sin offering with is with a guilt offering. Now that and we're not going to talk about that in depth. I just bring it up so you have a context. This is made for atonement of a purposeful sin, a guilt offering. And this is different. The reason is different. It's because you are repentant, and you are, it is for repentance. It has the added requirement of asking for forgiveness from the person you have wronged. And this is very different. Even if you are repentant, and you go to God and you are forgiven, 
it may not release you from the guilt you carry. That's why it's necessary to go back and try to make things right. Go back to the wronged person if you can and clear things up. And that's how that guilt can be relieved. So I think Leviticus, with this understanding, starts to become a little bit more applicable today's, to today's world. And this, as we move into 13, and you'll see why. Because now I think you understand, or at least I hope you understand, my thoughts on cleanliness, uncleanliness, and um, how we get there and why these different offerings are made. So as we move into chapter 13, we move into an area where the rabbi assesses a person as clean or unclean. In this case, we are talking about being identified as clean and unclean based on a physical manifestation of a spiritual failing. This is not about leprosy. And that's important to understand because even today in the readings, the translation talked about leprosy. But in this case, it's not about leprosy. The physical afflictions we're talking about, and the word they're using is zara'at. And that's an umbrella term over many skin eruptions. Now, I didn't make this observation myself, if that's what you think. In a number of sources, remember I did a lot of research for this, including the Bible that I typically use or often use when I, um, when I do my own studies, personal studies, is the Hebrew Bible. The footnotes highlight that modern-day scholars almost unanimously reject the idea that in this sense, um, Zara'at, in this sense that that is, should not be, they, believe, they are unanimous in believing that that should not be translated to leprosy. It doesn't, I mean, the epidemiology, if you read these sections, the epidemiology alone is not consistent with leprosy. So does this happen? When something is wrong, can it be manifested um, spiritually, something manifested physically for a spiritual issue? Well, there is an example of long ago, Miriam, Moses' sister, remember she was afflicted with Zara'at, meaning this umbrella, a skin eruption. After she and Aaron criticized Moses for his choice of a wife in Numbers 12, it was a physical manifestation for a spiritual problem. And that's how you have to understand that to understand these readings and to make sense. Not just for this week, but next week also. And I usually do not go outside of the readings of, the, of um, a particular week, but I have to for just a moment and talk about next week, Metzorah. And that's because usually, this year is unique, usually these two portions are combined together. But this week, okay, they're split. Um, Metzorah means infected one. And it deals with the affliction, again, of a physical manifestation of a spiritual problem, which is relevant in this week and to understand this week. Because Metzorah, the Hebrew base of that, is connected to Motsi Shemrah. And that is a person who is guilty of slander and gossip. Remember my, blo my bluff? That's what I was getting to. So if you follow that, and then you come back to our scriptures, there is a good level of concurrence that Zara'at is the physical manifestation in our readings this week. It is a physical manifestation of the spiritual sin of slander and gossip. 
So what we are talking about here is not a general illness that a doctor would be called to examine and treat, but again, the physical manifestation of a spiritual problem that would correctly fall under the duties of a rabbi to examine, and that's why in our readings the rabbi examines the person who has this outbreak. It is consistent with the point that the rabbi examines but does not treat. In this section, when you read it, he does not treat it. He doesn't say a doctor should come. He doesn't even pray for a healing miracle. He assesses, leaves that person to, in this sense, consider what gossip they had done or slander and then come back again to see if he had gotten right or is now clean with God. This is different from how disease in general is viewed in the Bible, throughout the Bible, where treatment is called for and compassion. So that type of disease that I'm talking about, the one that, that would normally be treated, um, is not an indicator of sin. It's sometimes mistaken that way, you know, the story of Job, but they were wrong. These kinds of diseases are not an indication of sin. Now, zotrat in general, like I said, is a term that covers many types of eruptions and discolorations in the skin, as well as can be manifested in inanimate objects, and in our readings it is, which again shows that leprosy is probably not the right thing. Your clothes, your walls, a roof uh, cannot catch leprosy. So I think there's good, good reason to understand and good reason through the research I had to understand how this should be translated. So now, it took a minute to get here, and I know that. But I thought all of that background was important to understand and grasp solidly, solidly the grounded reason or lesson that is applicable for us today. And in contrast to how we got here, everything I just said, the point is really simple. Watch what you say and why you say something. And it is very relevant today, which makes those readings understood correctly relevant today. And not something you should just pass over in Leviticus. You can barely turn on the TV or any electronic device where thoughts are shared in the community and not hear something that rises to the level of slander or gossip. Whenever you hear catchwords, like someone could be, may result in, possible charges, so-called, growing evidence, someone accuses. I mean, I just flipped on the internet, went to YouTube, and these are just little headings I pulled off, none of which indicate a fact is going to come next. What it does is it allows you to make a headline that grabs, may or may not be true, but they have little proof that it is, that grabs your attention, makes you angry, and causes you to talk to other people and maybe slip into that area of where we move into sin, and that is to gossip and slander. And that is the point of this week. It's wrong, or at least the point of that part of the scriptures. It's wrong, and we shouldn't do it. But it does happen to all of us. Spiritually, slander and gossip hurt three people, at least three people, usually more. The one who says it, as we learned this week, this makes you unclean. The one who hears it, because now they are tempted. And the person in it who it is about, because now they are hurt. It is meant to isolate and divide. And today's verses say that that being isolated and dividing, a dividing factor in people to be that kind of influence in people should separate us from the community. 
And we should have time to sit aside in our homes and consider our actions because that's not what we're supposed to be or how we're supposed to act. And it's very easy to fall into that today. Maybe more, sin than at, more so than at the time these verses were actually written down. I say this all the time, so you've probably had heard me say it before, but I think it bears repeating, and that is that nature hates a vacuum and always fills it with chaos. And that holds true for communication, the vacuum of communication. When people don't communicate, they fill that silence with chaos, chaotic thoughts and ideas. And often that translates into eventual gossip or even slander. That is true in the open electronic world. That is true in the temple. It is true in this temple. It is true with your friends. And I hope not, but it's probably also true at times in your family. Constructive criticism, questions on anything, the sharing of controversial ideas, I love them. That's great because those are fine. And I think you know the difference. In fact, I'm sure you do. Tempting though it may be, the verses this week point out clearly we should not gossip or slander, but seek understanding of those who sit next to us and we are with. I view words and always have as fire and forget weapons. Once they leave your mouth, the launcher, if it's a weapon, you can't pull them back and you can't stop the unwanted effect they're going to have. Maybe something to consider from the scriptures this week that makes them a lot more relevant than if you first read them. And I think a lot of people, especially with um, Leviticus, this book, when you first read it and you go, got nothing to do with me, not relevant today. And that is really the total of my message. Um, I hope you got something out of it. It actually turned out to be an interesting study. A little nerve-wracking getting at it because I was really trying to find a reason for those days difference and I just couldn't. I spent a lot of time on that. But I had fun preparing it and I hope you got something out of it. Um, before I close, <clears throat> I want to just give two quick uh, announcements here, I guess. First, obviously, um, for all of you, BI uh, and all of us at BI, you know, we want to thank all of you for your sacrificial giving. You know, it helps us minister and share God's word with people. And I hope you're moved because of that to join us. So please consider blessing us so that we can continue to bless others. I thank, you know, all the people up here who do the different things like the music ministry, but I thank you also for your generosity. And please consider also in your giving what help your generosity may be to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Any amount can help, and you can earmark that in your offering when you give it, either at the box at the doors, or if you go to bethisraelnow.com giving, I know you've heard this quite often, uh, the platforms, the giving platforms are giving fire and PayPal, and they are safe. And one more thing, and I hope to see you all there, we have a bagel own egg in the Shalom Center when we're done here. And really, it would be a pleasure to see you all there and share some time together. With that, I will ask my wife to come up. And if you guys could stand and prepare yourselves, join together and prepare yourselves for the ironic benediction.
It was pointed out last time that I didn't put my arm around my wife. She just said I didn't have to say that. I know. <laughs> so, not making a mistake twice. I am trainable. Please close your eyes and let these words watch over, wash over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant each and every one of you his peace. Adonai, Adonai, Pnavalecha, Vayasem Lecha, Shalom. God bless you all, and I hope to see you at the Oneg. Oh, don't forget to pick up your little anchors. <laughs>